Now let's uh, read again, and it'll provide the basis for the sermon too. Reading in Exodus 17. That's the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 17. And uh, reading at verse 1. We'll just read the first seven verses of the chapter, which are a self-contained unit. Exodus 17 at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin. Now, that's got nothing to do with sin as we know it. It's simply a place name. Might be better, actually, if it was written with a capital Z. So from the wilderness of Zin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And uh, particularly those words of verse 7. Of course, they sum up the incident, as we'll see, and they can just form the words of our text. Verse 7, so he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? The place names Massa and Meribah. Now, the events recorded in these seven verses are easy enough to follow the people or the congregation of the Lord, the people of Israel, are on their famous journey from um, Egypt to the land of promise, a journey that symbolizes the soul's journey in being released from Egyptian bondage and brought into the glorious liberty and joy of heaven. On their journey, they arrive at a place that's called Rephidim, And for the second time on their journey, they find no water for their encampment. Now, you're to remember that there are at least a million souls 
in this encampment, and there's no water. And as they did before, they blamed Moses for that. Now, Moses takes his complaint to the Lord, and God tells Moses to take some of the elders of the people of Israel, that's the chief men who were representing Israel as a people, and to also take with them the rod of God, which is so full of symbolism. We'll see that tonight, God willing. So take the elders and the rod of God, and he tells him to strike the rock. And as Moses strikes the rock, the water flows out, and the people are able to drink. This incident is referred to elsewhere in the Bible, and uh, as well as helping us to understand what it means, it also fleshes out a couple of details. First of all, we're told by Isaiah, the prophet, and also in the Psalms, that the rock was actually split when Moses struck it. The account in Exodus doesn't tell us that, but like I said, it tells us that elsewhere, that the rock actually split. And again, both Isaiah and David tell us that the water gushed out of the rock in several streams, not just one. Now, that's sometimes why pictures of these things can be misleading. I remember myself in a Bible I used to have as a child, there was a picture of uh, Moses striking the rock, and there was just a kind of trickle of water out of the rock. Now, that's like many of these pictures, they miss the point altogether. This, wash, this water... Uh, copiously gushed out of the rock, so much so as we'll see later that it followed the people on part of their journey through the wilderness. For example, in Psalm 78, we're told this in verse 15, in desert rocks he clave, now here again, he cut open the rock, and drink as from great depths supplied he from the rock. He brought streams like floods waters to run down. So you have floods of water copiously gushing from the rock. Now these are really all the details we know. These are, as you could say, the facts. But for us, of course, the question is, what do these facts mean? How do we understand them or how do we interpret them? And of course, when it comes to the Old Testament like that, we always need to be careful especially when we come across something that is a, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we suspect that the Lord Jesus Christ is here anyway. But we always have to be careful that uh, we don't just use our own imagination in finding the Lord Jesus Christ, that we follow what the Scripture tells us. How do we see Christ here? In what way does he come forth? And what is the lesson or what are the lessons for us? And the fact is that, as always, the Spirit of God has given us keys by which we can interpret the passage. Two interpretive keys. And the first key lies in the place names that Moses gives to the places where these incidents took place. You'll, you'll notice that he gives two place names. We have them. In the words of our text, in verse 7, he calls the name of the place Masa, which means tempting, and Meribah, which means quarreling or contention. 
Now, obviously, these two themes are very important and lead us to the heart of what's happening in the passage. There's another interpretive key, too, and uh, we'll look at it in detail tonight, but it's given to us by Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, where he refers to this incident. And he tells us, and uh, he tells us this in the context of uh, making the journey in following Christ, but being lost, sadly, because we weren't in earnest and we weren't truly resolved to follow him. Uh, you always have to remember that the visible Israel contained those who did believe and those who really didn't. In fact, connected to them, there was a group called the mixed multitude. People of other races, very often Egyptians, who thought that God was with this people and who exited Egypt with them. They pro proved a constant source of trouble to God's people. They were the first to complain when there was any reason to complain, and they brought many people down. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, is warning people against um, quarreling or complaining against God or discontentment of any kind, and he points to this incident. And he tells them that all the Israelites ate the bread from, them, from heaven, and they drank of the water of the rock that followed them. And he says, that rock was Christ. And almost when it says you, when, it, when you read it like that, or when you hear it like that, it, it takes your breath away. It shocks you. He just says it like that. And that rock, he says, was Christ. That rock was Christ. So quite obviously, we're to take that interpretive key as well and slot it into this passage. The rock here represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the rod that hit him has something to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, and the water that gushed from him has something to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in any case, these are the two interpretive keys, the place names and Peter's statement that the rock was Christ. Now, I want to look this morning with you just at the place names, and uh, tonight we'll look at Paul's statement that this rock was Christ. Well then, with God's help, first of all, the place names. In verse 7, he, and we understand there, Moses, he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah. Masa, you'll remember, is temptation or testing. These two words may seem different, carry a slightly different shade of meaning, but they are essentially interchangeable most of the time. So Masa is a temptation or a testing, and Meribah is contention or quarreling. Now you'll notice that both these terms tell us what the people actually did. They define what the people did. When the people say, give us water to drink, and why have you brought us out of Egypt? Is it just to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? These two words, Masa and Meribah, tell us what's behind these words. When they said things like that, they were contending and they were testing. Now, although I want to look really at what the people did, I think, to be honest, it's better to look, first of all, to look at what they, sh to look at what they should have done. 
what they should have done. What ought their response to have been when they found no water for the second time on their journey? After all, we can only really understand what's wrong when we know what's right. When we have a clear picture of how they should have responded, we can see exactly where they went wrong. And that, thankfully, is easy enough. If you're to ask, well, what was their duty when they came to a place where there was no water? Well, it's a very straightforward duty. They simply have to ask the Lord for his help, and they need to wait prayerfully and patiently for that help to come. And until that help comes, they are to continue with everyday life doing their duty. Now, let me just explain that a little further. First of all, when I say, or even when the scripture says that they should wait prayerfully and patiently, uh, they've got previous experience teaching them that that's what they should do. They faced a similar situation already in the wilderness. Some of you will remember the incident at Mara, when they came to a place that had water, but the water was bitter. Their response, it seems to be their default response, was to complain to Moses. Now, Moses was commanded to cast a tree into the water, which sweetened the water, and they were able to drink. Now, God helped them then. He helped them in their need. He helped them in their distress. And so obviously God is teaching these people gradually to pray and to wait patiently for himself, to trust in God. That's not an easy lesson to learn. Of course, it's the first great lesson we learn when we become Christians. So we need to trust ourselves and to trust our life to God and to trust that if we follow him, if we believe him and obey him and follow him, he will take care of us. But it's a lifelong lesson to learn nonetheless. And you're surprised sometimes how how basic the lesson that you need to learn, to believe and to wait and to obey. Now, it's easy to forget what God has done for us in the past, especially when a crisis comes. It's easy to forget it. And of course, the tragedy is that if you forget what God has done for you in the past, I'll explain this later and I'll back it up with scripture, but if you forget what God has done in the past, it increases the chances of unbelief in your present situation. And of course, the danger with unbelief is that it hardens and becomes an ever greater source of sin in your life until at last perhaps if you are not really the Lord's, you fall away altogether. And it's interesting that the Psalms pick up on this all the time. First of all, in a general sense, you have a Psalm like the Psalm we read last Sabbath, Psalm 77, when the Psalmist is in such distress that he finds it difficult to pray. He says that even when he thinks of God, he is troubled. So instead of the thought of God inducing him to pray, the thought of God actually makes him feel troubled. He's that vexed and downcast about his situation. And he goes on to to question the rectitude of God, his justice and his righteousness in dealing out to him the situation that he actually has. And he asks, of course, these very probing questions. 
Is God no longer kind? Has God's mercy failed forevermore? Questions of that kind, and I'm sure that sometimes, uh, sadly, we can all identify with them. But then, of course, um, with God's help, he comes to himself, and he begins to think differently. Uh, Is it true that to be gracious the Lord forgotten hath, and that his tender mercies he hath shut up, or he stopped them in his wrath? Then did I say that surely this is my infirmity. In other words, thinking like this is wrong, he says. Yes, on the contrary, I will remember the works performed by the Lord, the wonders done of old by thee, I surely will record. That that means there to, to bring them before his memory. I also will of all thy works my meditation make, and of thy doings to discourse, to speak, great pleasure I will take. So he remembers the works that God has done in the past. Now, that's not necessarily just a reference to what God's done in the Scripture, but to what God's done in your own life. In fact, I've come to how important that is. What he's done for you in the past, how he brought you from darkness to light, how he led you into situations that were difficult, but extricated you out of these situations, how you were in temptation, but he delivered you out of temptation, and so on. So that's a very general sense of reminding yourself of the mighty works of God. But then the psalmist begins to relate them particularly to this incident here. In Psalm 78 and verse 40, He recalls the water coming from the rock, and he speaks of the importance of memory. Psalm 78 and verse 40. How often did they provoke him in the wilderness, and in the desert grieved him with their rebelliousness? Turning back, they tempted God. Now, here we are. We're brought to this incident. And they set limits upon him. They limited God. Again, I'll come to that. Who in the midst of Israel is the only holy one? They did not call to mind his power, nor yet the day when he delivered them out of the hand of their fierce enemy, nor the great signs that he had openly wrought in Egypt's land. They didn't call it to mind. Notice, it's highlighting that as a reason why they failed. They forgot. Therefore, they failed. They didn't think. They didn't meditate. They didn't call to remembrance. And therefore, they failed. Psalm 106 says exactly the same thing. They forgot his works. And they did not wait upon his counsel. And it's in that order. It's not they didn't wait upon his counsel and forgot his works. It's the other way around. They forgot his works, and therefore they didn't wait upon his counsel. They gave way to unbelief and gave way to sin. Now, I can't overemphasize the importance of that. You've got to make an effort when things are against you and you're led into difficulty. You've got to make a conscious effort to remember God's goodness to you personally. In the past, 
Now, it's strange, you see, how a crisis can blur your recollection of these things. In fact, if you're passing through a time of real difficulty, it's quite possible that even the most significant experiences that you had in the past will just recede away from your memory, and you're liable to to just put them down to something else other than the intervention and the help of God. But that can be conquered by making a real effort to recollect them in living detail and in their fullness. Now, (laughs) uh, as the Latin word says, peccavi, or I have sinned, it's one of the things that I find difficult to urge people to do because I I have to confess I haven't really done it, at least properly myself, and that's to record, to record what God does for you and when he does it for you and how he does it for you. Revisit it. Uh, I remember when that came home to me powerfully, thinking of the memorial stones that Joshua told Israel to take out of the River Jordan and to erect on the other side of the Jordan at Gilgal. And he said it would be for generations to come a reminder when they looked at these stones, a reminder to them of of the wonderful work of God. It wasn't just a cairn of stones or a heap of stones, but how God had split the river and allowed them to cross the Jordan on dry land. You look and remember. But of course, the process is this, that you record and therefore recall, and then you can reflect. If you don't record, it's harder to recall and it's harder to reflect. Some of you will have better memories than others. Some of you may be easily bring to mind the things that God has done for you in the past. But I know for myself it's not like that. I can forget some very substantial things which God did in the past. Record them. I urge you to record them. And the younger you are in the Christian life, the more useful it is to record them. I think there will be times in your life when going back over these things, you'll be shocked at what you've forgotten. You'll be amazed at what you see and how thankful to God you were at the time how God did intervene, and that will help you in the present. It will help you in the present. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. They didn't wait because they forgot his works. Isn't that significant? They didn't wait for God because they had forgotten his works. They didn't call his power to mind. Not as an abstract concept that will do you no use whatsoever, but as that attribute of God has been worked out in your life, bringing that to your recollection will do you good by the Spirit of God. So make an effort to recall. That's the first encouragement they had to wait. They'd seen it before. They'd been there before and God helped them. Isn't it interesting how the devil says, oh yes, but this time it's different. This time it's different. No, it's not. The second encouragement they had to wait was that they were actually, at this present time, in the will of God. They weren't wandering in the desert out of the way. They were wandering the desert in the way. And you'll notice how the Holy Spirit is careful to record that for us in verse 1 of the chapter. It's, it's putting that in straight away just so... We know our reference point. We've got our bearings. The congregation of the children of Israel, verse 1, set out on their journey from the wilderness of Zin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rafida. So they're not going down a bypath. 
They're not trying to body swear of the path or avoid a mountain that God has put there. They are doing what God told them to do. They're going where God told them to go. If God simply allowed them here to do a wrong thing, which God does, I mean, we've seen that often enough. God allows his people to do a wrong thing when their hearts are set on a wrong thing. In fact, we read it in the psalm. He gave them what their souls desired, but to their souls he leanness sent. We've all experienced that, I suppose. We've all experienced that. We were determined on something. We got it. And then all we got was leanness of soul until we put it right. But, and the promises that apply there are very different to the promises that, that apply when you're in the way. Very different. But you can know when you're in the way and doing what God wants you to do that he will absolutely provide for you. You can trust in his provision. If God takes you there and places you there, he will provide for you. His integrity is at stake. His character, his word is involved in it. You can do it. You can trust in his provision if you're walking in the commandment of the Lord. And that's why they should have prayed and waited for either help or further guidance. Something that said, you're not to stop here, you're to move on, or something that simply brought water to them. You took me here, so you must give me water to drink. There's nothing wrong with saying that. That doesn't actually tempt the Lord. Now that takes us to what the people actually did do. Their response was very different. So let's look at the place names. Let's begin, first of all, with the second place name. We won't begin with Massa. Let's begin with Meribah, which means a contention or a quarrel. And their quarrel was with Moses. At least, it appeared to be with Moses. On the face of it, it was. And they were accusing Moses of being irresponsible and careless. Give us water to drink. And, of course, they go further and they begin to insult. Why is it that you've brought us up out of Egypt? Is it to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? At least it's not as bad this time as it had been the previous time when they remembered Egypt with its garlic and its cucumbers and its melons and its leeks. Um, astonishing selective memory. This is a people who are under the lash of the whip a people who were slaves and degraded. But now when they've reached a difficult situation, when they were expecting a good one, it's as though the past, well, it's rose-tinted glasses. That's how the devil makes it sometimes appear to you. Oh, he'll say to you sometimes as a Christian, you know, you never had these difficulties before you became a Christian. Well, life was easy then. You didn't have these hardships and these trials and these testings. It was sunny all day long. No rain, no clouds in the sky. Well, what a load of nonsense that is, if you really recall. But when you're in the middle of unbelief and in the middle of the devil's temptations, that's how it looks. Perspective is wrong. At least it's not that bad this time. But there's still the accusations regarding Moses' motive or his ability to do anything for them. There's not a word of the promised land. It's, why have you taken us up out of Egypt? Is it just to kill us and our children and our livestock? with thirst. Give us water. It's your job. It's your job. You took us here. You give us water. Um, but of course, it's their job to get water too, is it not? If our understanding of the situation is right, 
If it's God who took them there, and if it's God who's going to supply the water, then they should come to God in prayer themselves for the water. Instead, they directly accuse Moses and say it his, it's his responsibility to get them water. Now, as I thought about this, and I hope with the Lord's help, it struck me how easy it is to expect, even from ministers of the gospel, what you ought to be getting yourself directly from the Lord. Sometimes um, you complain, maybe, of emptiness, and perhaps you blame the minister for it, or different ministers for it, when really perhaps the fault lies in yourself. Now, I'm not someone to give ministers a blank check, so that irrespective of the poverty of what they've got, the people can be chastised for getting nothing from it. The fact of the matter is that the pulpits of our land and of many Western lands are in a dire state. And I don't say that from the point of view of any arrogance or anything like that at all. It's just the fact of the matter that there are too many people in the pulpits who don't show any evidence that the Lord called them into that pulpit. There's an absence of truth. There's an absence of conviction, an absence of authority, an absence of food and drink, just an absence. It's just a couple of stories, a couple of moralizing stories that maybe last five or ten minutes, and that's it. So I don't need to make the case. You know it. You know that there's a problem in the pulpits, and it's a blight on the land. Undoubtedly it is. But making all allowance for that, I wonder if the reason why we often perish ourselves is because we look too much to the ministers and too little to God himself. Let's just take our own gathering just now as an example. What did you come out to the church today to see? Or what did you come out to hear? And let's suppose you receive nothing, or nothing of lasting benefit to yourself. Is it worth asking the question, well, who was I seeking it from anyway? Was I seeking it from the minister, or was I seeking it from God? Very often, even when the minister might be quite poor, you tend to get out of a service of worship what you put into it. As a rule, you tend to get out of it what you put into it. And if there's no continuing power especially, no continuing power, in other words, let's suppose you say, well, I quite appreciated that, I quite enjoyed it, but you're out the door, it's finished, you go home, it's gone, there's no more word of the sermon. Well, was that the minister's fault? Or does it maybe indicate that you put nothing in and therefore you got nothing of lasting value out? I mean, what right would I have myself, let's say, to attend an ordinance and to immediately look up and say, right, you give me food. But I made no effort before I came out to ask God to give me food. I spent no time before God asking a blessing upon the minister, asking a blessing upon the reading of the word, and upon normally the singing of the sanctuary, asking the Holy Spirit to be present, to equip me for worship, to still my spirit and my heart, it's interesting that when Elijah, sorry, when Elisha was so agitated by the sin of a king, when, when he had to seek God's guidance, he prayed for a Levite. He said, bring me a minstrel or bring me a musician. 
to calm his spirit to be ready to hear from God. You, you can't just hear from God like that. Well, you can, but that's, that's God's extraordinary prerogative to sometimes make him known, self known like that. But in the ordinary course of events, you can't expect to hear from God if you haven't asked him really to speak. And that's why it's very easy to say, give me food, give me bread today. And you didn't ask God. And so God sends you home with no bread because you didn't ask him. There's something dishonorable in going up to Moses and saying, give us to drink, when God had told them already the need to wait prayerfully and patiently upon himself. And there's the disrespect, too. I mean, is this why you took us out of Egypt? This is a man who gave his life for these people. I mean, this is a man who lived the first 40 years, well, not the first 40, he lived the first five or six years in the huts with the Israelites, with his mother. Um, you know the story anyway, how he was born as a child in a time of genocide. His mother, receiving a command from God, basically buried him. The symbolism is one of burial. Buried him in a coffin, sent him up the aisle, uh, the river Nile. He was taken in by Pharaoh. The result is that he was given to a wet nurse who was actually his own mother. And so she raises him for the first five or six years of his life. But from then until he's 40, he's raised in the palace of Pharaoh. He's raised as an heir. As Stephen tells us in his sermon in the New Testament that in Egypt, he was mighty in word and deed as a young man. He was a member of the nobility. He was a member of Pharaoh's household. And he gave all that away because of his identification with his people. He gave everything that he had away for their sakes, even as the Lord Jesus Christ did. You know that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might be rich. And how terrible a thing it is now to turn to a man who gave everything for them and to say, well, what's your motive anyway? What's your motive anyway? Is this all you can do for us, to bring us out here to die? So much for the land that flows with milk and honey. Now Moses is understandably grieved at their grievance. He doesn't explode with anger and frustration. I, I wish we could say that that was true of him all the time. Of course, famously, later he did explode with anger and frustration a few years after this. Um, I, I might touch on this a little bit tonight. And then again, I, I might not, but you'll remember that a very similar incident happened to this at, at uh, Kadesh, a good few years afterwards, when Moses took water from the rock a second time, he did it in anger that time. And he spoke, as the psalmist says, he spoke unadvisedly with his lips when he struck the rock. And uh, as a chastisement, God kept him out of the land of promise himself. Anger and frustration. By that time, it was not excusable, but understandable. But... And you can tell from the way he, he cries to God that he's still frustrated. What shall I do with his people? He says, they are almost ready to stone me in verse 4. But frustrated or not, he does the right thing. He brings it to God. The people didn't, but he did. He took his situation to God. 
That's the right thing to do. Now, sometimes, sad to say, it is your frustration you take to God. And it's not right to be frustrated with God. But it's better to tell God about your frustration than it is to keep it festering in your own heart. That's why the Psalms are so good and so rich. Uh, it's, it's not all sweetness and light in the Psalms. There's real darkness and grappling and sometimes near despair. Moses takes this. He says, what can I do? I mean, you, you've put me here. He says, what can I do with the people? He says, they're ready to stone me. But you'll notice that Moses also diagnoses the true nature of that problem in verse 2. The people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Your contention, Meribah, is one thing, but your real problem is Massa, tempting. And you're not tempting me to anger, although you are, but you're not really tempting me to anger. You are actually tempting God. That takes us to the second place name, Massa, tempting or testing. Now, I think we need to understand, first of all, what that tempting or testing means before we can understand how Israel were guilty of it. What does it mean to tempt or to tempt the Lord, to test the Lord? Well, simply it means that instead of um, taking him at his word and trusting him on the basis of the word that he's spoken to you, it means that you doubt that word and you put him to the test, therefore, and you get God to prove that he is who he says he is and that he has promised what he appears to have promised and that he does these things to your satisfaction, really. He does these things to your satisfaction. Now, testing God like that is prohibited in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, either verse 16 or 17, Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't test him like that. Don't test him like that. Uh, sometimes it's better to give an example than a definition or even a description. You'll remember in the wilderness, and we read the passage, how the Lord was tempted by the devil. In the second temptation, the devil takes him up onto a, one of the temple wings and he urges him to cast himself down from the temple wing. Now, the devil is not wise, but he's very, very clever. And this, this particular temptation was a very clever one. He quotes the Bible for a start. He quotes Psalm 91 to the Lord. Now, that's a very clever psalm to quote because it is a messianic psalm. The theme of that psalm is the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that psalm says that he will give his angels, this is God speaking, um, this is speaking to the Messiah, sorry, about God. He, that is God, will give you, the Messiah, um, he will give his angels to take charge over you, to keep you in all your ways, lest you even dash your foot against the stone. In, in other words, God will take care of you, the Messiah, in such a way that nothing will befall you until, of course, the time of his sufferings came. 
That's a promise. Now, the devil is clever enough to know that that psalm refers to the Messiah. He's clever enough to know what it means, and he's clever enough to twist it. Clever enough to twist it. He tries to get Christ to misuse that protection text and to misapply it to himself. In fact, the the devil leaves a little part of the text out. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. He leaves an important part of the text out. What the text says is that he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. He conveniently slips out that middle bit. He just moves from the one to the other. He will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In other words, sorry, in case you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, he leaves out the bit about obedience. He leaves out the bit about obedience, and he says, God will take care of you. Now, how does, he, how does he try to get Christ to tempt God with this text? How could it be possible to take a text from the Bible and tempt God with it? Well, I think it works essentially like this. The essence of the temptation is to try to get Christ to abuse his position. It's as though Satan says effectively, <clears throat> well, you're the son of God, are you? Suppose we grant that you are the son of God. Why then are you in this wretched condition? Why has he brought you out into the wilderness and you've now been here for 40 days and 40 nights? You're isolated. You're starving. And there's no sign of any help and of any deliverance. Is it really the Messiah's condition, according to the Old Testament, to live a life of poverty and a life of hunger and a life of isolation? Would it not be far more in keeping with your status to use your power? It's your power after all. Are you not the son of God? Command the stones to be bred. Claim these kingdoms of the world for yourself. And he says, if you're in any doubt that God loves you, put it to the test. Just climb up the temple and fling yourself off, he says, because you've got a special promise from God. And that promise is that the angels will keep you in all your ways lest you at any time dash your foot against a stone. Just prove to yourself that God loves you. God loved me once. I was high and holy, but I was cast out of heaven. Are you sure you're not in the process of being cast out of heaven yourself? Are you sure you're not in the process of being disinherited as the son of God? Well, prove it then. Just as you can be inclined to get God to prove himself to you by saying, well, I'll believe you if, I believe you if, or something more sinister like, I'm now going to commit suicide. If you're God, stop me. If you're real, stop me. That's testing God. It's tempting God. You're you're not taking him at his word. You're not believing his truth. You're laying down your terms and conditions. It's a bit like what Thomas was doing last week. A bit like it. Slightly different. Testing him tempting him. And the Lord recognizes it. And it's interesting that the, that the Lord's response to the devil in connection with this particular temptation is, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ simply waited for his providence to turn. And it turned soon afterwards. We're told that the devil left him 
And then if you notice, we're told that angels came and ministered to him. Now, I don't know if you've ever made, maybe, maybe it's an obvious connection to you. I don't know if you've ever made the connection between the angels coming to minister to him there and the temptation which said that he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. I think the connection is, is more or less this, that Christ believed in that angelic presence anyway. Whether, whether they were visible or invisible, he believed in God's protective care even in the worst of circumstances. He believed it because God said so. And he believed that God would provide because God said so. And the fact that he trusted God like that meant that God rewarded him by this ministry of angels in his time of need. Sometimes sight produces faith, like Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. At other times, faith produces sight. That's an example here. You believed, now you'll see it for yourself. I will indeed give the angels charge over you. And uh, the angels, of course, disappeared after this, but it was an encouragement for the Lord to continue to believe that the angels had charge over him. Now, uh, it's, it's a side thought. It's, of course, touching on this, but isn't it interesting to think of the ministry of angels in connection with ourselves? Isn't it interesting, too, to think of it in connection with the Lord? They sang at his birth. They announced his resurrection from the grave. And here and there, we have an insight into those angels that were honored to serve them upon the earth. A wonderful thing. Now, sadly, Israel tested the Lord here. How? Well, first, they demanded God's provision. Give us water to drink. They demanded it of Moses. They were, in effect, demanding it of God. In their time and on their terms. It's never a good, it's never indicative of faith that it's indicative of unbelief to demand God's provision. God's provision will be given. It's your, it's your job to wait for it. Um, I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. That's one of the first Psalms. If, if you came from a Psalm singing church, that's probably one of the first Psalms you learned as a child. You'd have learned Psalm 23 and you'd have learned this one. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. It's little did you know that that would be the hardest lesson to learn in the Christian life. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. There's a lifetime of learning in that. They demanded God's provision now and on their terms. They also doubted God's purpose. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children? Remember, that's directed to Moses. Moses it's really directed to God. Of course it is. So often when we complain about other Christian people, we're complaining about God. When we're complaining about our providence and the part other people have played in it, whether they're off the world or believers, we're complaining about God. And you, you've got to trace it back to God all the time. Recognize it for what it is. It's easier to be ashamed of it and to recognize it as a sin when you just trace it back to God. So effectively, they're saying, why, Lord, did you take us out into this situation? Just to kill us? As though God intended harm? There's no word of what God had done for them in the past, right? 
And neither is there any clear vision of what God was going to do to them in the future. He told them he was bringing them into a land of milk and honey. And nothing's changed that. He didn't say there wouldn't be problems on the way. But, but they've lost sight of that. And all too often we do too. And we ask, well, why have you allowed this situation? Why have you allowed this financial hardship? Is this what Christianity meant? Is this what liberation from Egypt involved? Is this spiritual emancipation to be persecuted or to be harassed or to be in serious difficulty? Ah, but you're on the way to the land that's flowing with milk and honey. That's not why God took you into this, why God called you to himself to experience what you're experiencing. That's not the end game. That's not the end point. This is part of the process of cleansing and purification, and you've got to remember that. Whatever's in your cup is in your cup because you need it. You need it. If you didn't need it, it wouldn't be in your cup. And of course, your response to that is to say, oh, I could get on fine without this. I'd make better progress heavenward without this. By God giving me this, he stalled me and he stumbled me. No, he has not. He has not. Are you God? Do you honestly think you could handle your own soul better than God could? Do you think you could order your own chastisements better than God? No. No, you cannot. God appointed thirst. He doesn't intend you harm. You know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not thoughts of evil, to give you an expected end or a hoped-for end. Doubting God's provision. They demanded God's provision. They doubted God's purpose. And they were doubting God's presence. In verse 7, he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, that's maybe that one doesn't sound so bad, but at the end of the day, again, it's insulting too, is it not? Is God here or not? Is, is God with me or not? Um, how can we really say that if, if we've experienced the goodness and the mercy of God? Well, we can only say it because of our unbelief, really. Sometimes, you know, when you doubt your past Christian life, you say, well, I, I'm not sure if I'm a believer or not. What, what are you saying? What, what are you saying? Suppose you're saying that 25 years into your Christian life. Are you genuinely looking back over the last 25 years and saying, Ah, well, I don't see any evidence of sonship there. I don't see any evidence there of the fatherhood of God. I, I don't see the love of God and the mercy towards myself. No, that's not what you intended to say. But is that not what you're saying? Is the Lord here or not? Of course he is. What do you think that shining cloud by day symbolizes? What is the pillar of fire by night that took you here to Rephidim symbolize? I mean, right around them is the evidence that they're where God wanted them to be at that particular time. What sense does it make to say, is the Lord here or not? And what sense does it make for yourself too? You know in your secret place in the sanctuary, you know with the Bible open in your hand, you know when you're calling upon the name of the Lord that the Lord is with you and that the Lord has been with you and that the Lord will be with you. 
It's terrible, really. And according to the psalmist, when they said these things, they limited God. That's the expression the psalmist used. When they doubted all these things, they limited God. That's what we do, limit him all the time. Stick him in our little boxes. As though he can't help us. As though he can't move the situation forward. And, the psalmist says, they grieved him. They didn't just limit him, but they grieved him. We just have to take that as it is. I mean, some people try and theologize these things away. Just take it as it is, this grieved God. Grieved God. I wonder how often I grieve him myself. When the disciples, and I'm just finishing, when they roused Jesus in the boat when he had fallen asleep, they, they didn't come to him quickly for help. They tried to sort the situation out themselves. And in desperation, at last, they roused him and said, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? Was that not a grief to the Lord? The insinuation that he didn't care. Had, had they prayed, they would have known that he cared. Now, for all this, you expect God's chastisement and discipline, and lo and behold, it doesn't come. What you suddenly have is a striking act of grace. The God who could have struck them down for their unbelief suddenly provides water. A wonderful thing, and we'll see the wonder of it, some of it anyway, as the Lord enables us, God willing, tonight. Let's stand to pray. O Lord, our God, we pray for faith uh, to keep believing and to keep obeying in the hardest of circumstances. For the Lord will not allow us to perish. We pray for faith to believe in the true bread which came from heaven and the one from whom we receive the water of life that that resource will never fail. In Christ's name, amen. Let's just read uh, a few verses in conclusion in Psalm 95. And verse 6, Psalm 95 at verse 6. Page 357. O come and let us worship him. Let us bow down with all, and on our knees before the Lord our Maker let us fall. Why? For he is our God, the people we of his own pasture are, and of his hand the sheep. And then we have this uh, solemn warning which the writer to the Hebrews takes up. Today, if ye his voice will hear, then harden not your hearts as in the provocation, as in the desert, on the day of the temp temptation, when me, your fathers, tempted and proved and did my working see, even for the space of forty years this race hath grieved me. I said this people errs in heart, my ways they do not know, to whom I swear in wrath, that to my rest they should not go. So let's not give way to that spirit of unbelief, but rather let's Keep holding upon the name of the living God. Let's now close with the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Please remember to vacate the church from the back and um, also uh, to let someone know at the door. Let, if you could let uh, Donnie Campbell know if you're coming.